Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning, open to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. A moment we'll read verses 6 through 10. What a privilege it is to be able to hear from God's word and listen. To have, as Jesus says in the book of Revelation, ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us through the living and abiding word of God. That's our prayer that God's word would abide in us, would remain in us, would dwell in us, and that we would clothe ourselves in God's word. Where else is there that we have to turn to? Who else is there that we can turn to rather than God and to his word? So with that, let us read. Would you stand with me as I read verses 6 through 10 of Galatians chapter 6? Hear the word of the Lord. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. We pray in the name of our blessed Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. may be seated. Fighting for the gospel is hard work. This is what Paul has been telling to the church in Galatia. Fight for the gospel. 
But fighting for the gospel is not for the faint of heart. It's not for the timid. It takes strength and boldness and courage. It's not easy work. But it is necessary work. It's the most important work in the world because only gospel fruit grows in a church whose root is sustained by gospel life. It's why the gospel must remain the main thing in the church. And how many people, and how many churches want lasting, hope-filled, joyful, juicy, abundant gospel fruit, and yet that fruit will never grow, will never be produced, and will never arrive if there is no gospel root. And so unfortunately, many have to try to fake it. I don't want to fake it. Fake fruit looks good on the outside, but it's not real fruit. You only need to take a bite of it to know it's deception. Paul wants the church in Galatia to bear gospel fruit. He wants the church to live by the gospel. And that should be our heart's desire to say, we want to be those people who live by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The life of the church, the lives of those within the church, should have something to show for the belief that they have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is no gospel fruit, it only shows that there is no gospel root, and therefore it is dead. Perish that horrible and terrifying thought. This is what Paul is pressing into our hearts at the end of the book of Galatians. If you're going to fight for the gospel in the church, if you're going to hold fast to Jesus Christ, if you are going to cling to salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then fruit brought about by the Spirit of God will be evident in the church. You will see the fruit. You won't be able to miss it. And Paul is saying that the branches of this tree, these branches of the, the church, that is the pillar and buttress of truth, should be weighed down with all of the gospel fruit that is on it. Have you ever seen a tree like that? That has so much fruit, it's so abundant, that the branches can hardly keep the fruit on the tree. That should be the church. That should be us. But what does it look like? Could you recognize it? Could you spot it? Do you know it when you see it? And how do you know it? Well, I think what Paul has been arguing in the book of Galatians is you know spiritual fruit, you know the fruit of the gospel in the life of the church because you know Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? That is a question that every person must answer. And eternity hangs in the balance of how you answer that question. Even Jesus asked this question to his disciples when he said, But who do you say that I am? How about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Listen to how Peter describes Jesus to a man named Cornelius in Acts 10. You can turn there if you'd like. Acts 10, verse 38 and following. This is what Peter says. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's who Jesus is. That's the way Peter answers that question for Cornelius and for his household. And did you hear, did you hear what Peter said, one of the first ways that he described Jesus? It says, he went about doing good. Now, we know that Jesus didn't stop there. He went on to do more to accomplish salvation and redemption, but let us not deny that Jesus did good. And that his doing of good was done as one who was anointed by the Holy Spirit and who had power. This was doing good that was done by the Son of God himself. And so when Paul now, in these verses in Galatians 6, urges us as Christians to do good, to do good in the Spirit, to do good in the Spirit and bear gospel fruit, we know what it looks like because we know what it looks like in the life of Jesus Christ. He was the one who first did good and so bore fruit, and so we know what that looks like because we know Jesus. And let us not think that doing good pulls us away from the gospel. No, doing good is meant to be the evidence of the gospel at work in us. It's not like, well, over here we have the gospel, and now over here we have doing good. They go together, they're intertwined, they're meshed, they're married together. It is the evidence that we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and it displays that we are becoming more and more like Jesus when we do good. But how about this question? Can't anybody do good? I mean, is this specifically a Christian topic? We can recognize there is a common grace in our world where people are able to do some good for their fellow man. But this doing good that Paul speaks of here is set apart because it is ultimately doing good in the Spirit. What is that? Doing good in the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, I think we must admit that when you do good in the Spirit, it cares for other people's souls in such a way that only God can do it. And we must get the order here right. Too many view doing good as something that would make them acceptable in the eyes of God. I'm doing good so that I get ahead. I'm doing good so that God might accept me. 
but we are those who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's because we have believed that we are accepted in the eyes of God. And doing good does not secure our standing before God. It's because our standing is secure before God that we can then go and do good. It's because I know whose I am. I am Christ's, so I can do good. Because all of my doing good does not clean me up enough for God, does not make me look acceptable to God, cannot make me, Him accept me more. I mean, you think about it, even what Jesus says in the Sermon on the, on the Mount when He warns, there will be people on that day who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And they list all of these things that they did. Do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? Do we not do all of these things? No, it's not doing good that secures our salvation. It's our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm secure in Him. Therefore, I do good. As we look at doing good this morning, I do not think it's necessarily a hard line that we can divide between what He means to do good. I think that in saying this, I think... When Paul speaks, this doing good is both spiritual and material. It's both spiritual and material. You're doing good for someone spiritually, and you also are doing good for someone materially, physically. We could even say maybe financially, tangible ways. So I think as we come to this text this morning, when Paul speaks of doing good, we see both of these go hand in hand, spiritual and physical doing of good to other people to care for their souls. So what does it mean to do good in the Spirit? What does it mean to do good in the Spirit? You can follow along there in your bulletin, in the outline if that's helpful. But first, three don'ts and then one do. Three don'ts and then one do. First, what it doesn't look like. One, don't be stingy when doing good. Don't be stingy when doing good. This is one of those texts that is not easy to preach as a pastor because it could very easily be misconstrued as self-serving. Here's the pastor talking about money because he wants to be paid more. I hope by the end of this point you will see and think differently. And even though I approach this verse with much fear and trepidation, it must be preached. This is one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible. I don't get to pick and choose, leave certain things out and certain things in. It's just the next thing in the text. <laughs> and so Paul draws out our attention to what must be happening in the church. There's a priority that's in the life of the church and this priority is seen in the teaching and the preaching that happens in the church. It's central to the life of the church. It's central to what we are doing here this morning. And there are two camps, aren't there? First, there are those who are taught, those who receive the teaching in the church. And not just any teaching, they are taught what? They are taught the Word. It's the teaching of the Word of God that is the standard for the life of the church. This is the primary focus. Why do you come to worship 
on Sunday? Why do you come to Wednesday night? There is to be a hunger in the church of God, a hunger in the people of God to be taught the word of God. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will satisfy. And this is to be a high standard, a standard that is uncompromised and unwavering. Preach the word in season and out of season. The other camp is the teacher of the word. Teachers are the elders, the pastors. And it appears here that Paul has in mind that there could at least be someone, one person at least, could be more than one, but one person who the church supports, who dedicates his time to teaching them the word. Teaching the word is a difficult task. It takes time. It takes thought. It takes effort and hard work. Sometimes it's agonizing. But if you're hungry for the word, you want precise, accurate, soul-satisfying, soul-restoring, nutritious teaching from God's word. And that doesn't come easy. It isn't made up on Saturday night. Do you know how long I have prepared for this message? It's taken me 39 years, 8 months, 2 weeks, and 6 days to get ready for today. And this isn't said to puff me. I mean, who am I? Nobody. Rather, it is said to say, thank you, Lord, that you have brought us to this day and to this teaching from your word. It's been a long time coming, but it's good. And we, we look at this verse and I could start with you, but let's start with me for a second. I pray and plead with God that the teaching and preaching of God's word is of spiritual good to your life and to your soul. I want to do spiritual good to you and I don't want to be stingy. And you don't want me to be stingy with doing spiritual good to you, do you? No, you should come and say, be generous. Be abundantly generous with the spiritual good that you are due to our souls through the preaching and teaching of God's word. That you will come to your, the table with your mouths wide open, wanting your bellies to be made full. That your eyes, when you come to this table, will never be bigger than your stomachs as you feast on God's word. And I pray that the teaching of God's word would have a good effect in you and make you gospel fat. I want you to push away from the table on Sunday morning saying, I need to let out my belt a few notches. My desire is to do good to you through the teaching of God's word and to be generous. No holding back. I want to share with you spiritual things. And then what is the response of those who are taught? To share material things with the one who teaches. This is nothing to be ashamed about. This is the economy that God has designed in his church and in gospel ministry. Listen to what Paul says other places. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 and 14. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? The answer is no, that's proper. 
1 Corinthians 9.14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Or 1 Timothy 5.18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when he treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And here's what happens when one teaches the word and then those who are taught respond. You see it here in these verses? Let the one who is taught the word do what? Share. That word share is the same word oftentimes that we get fellowship from. There is something that's going on between the one who is teaching and the people who are taught. Their relationship is such that there is a gospel bond. There is a gospel fellowship. And so then our giving needs to be in the right attitude of this kind of fellowship, this kind of sharing. I am not rendering you a service that you are paying for. No, we are to share a rich fellowship. And the closeness of the fellowship is shown in how we generously and mutually share the gifts that God has given us between ourselves. So do you ever wonder why Paul would write a verse like this? Is it so that we as pastors would cheer Paul on saying, Way to go, Paul. You tell him. That's not it. Paul pens this verse because he understands how Satan tries to ruin gospel ministry. Listen to what Martin Luther says about this verse. We now begin to understand how necessary this command of Paul is. Satan can abide nothing less than the light of the gospel. So, when he sees it begin to shine, he rages and tries with all of his might to quench it. He does this in two ways. First, by lying spirits and the force of tyrants, and then by poverty and famine. If the ministers of the word have their maintenance withdrawn and become oppressed with poverty, they might abandon the ministry. And so the miserable people will be destitute of the word of God and will in time become as savage as wild beasts. That's what Martin Luther says about it. And I think it's helpful. And what a a beautiful picture. Satan hates nothing else than the gospel and the gospel shining forth in full brightness. And he would do everything he could to quench that and squelch it and stop it. And so, how does he do it? He sends tyrants into the church, or he might try to starve them out. Let's starve this person out of the work of the ministry And he would love nothing more than for ministers of the word to abandon the work of the ministry and so create a famine of the word of God among the people of God. So obeying this verse is fighting for the gospel. And so I also would say thank you for your generosity, for sharing with me, fellowshipping with me as we do good to one another. Number two. Do not be deceived about doing good. 
Do not be deceived about doing good. Right on the heels of verse 6, Paul brings an important biblical principle. A simple principle, a principle that we all know, at least at face value. You reap what you sow. Have you ever heard someone say, I just need to go sow my wild oats? Or maybe someone make an excuse for others and say, well, they just need to go and sow their wild oats. You know what I want to say to those people? Don't do it. Don't sow your wild oats because you don't want to reap the consequences of those oats that you've sown. If we mix the metaphors, you don't want those chickens coming home to roost. Obviously, this is a principle that we need to remind ourselves of because Paul warns, do not be deceived. How easily we can be deceived into thinking that we will not reap what we've sown. That somehow we don't have to face the consequences of our actions. The principle is obvious, though, and as plain as the nose on your face. If you plant corn seed, you get corn. I'm not even a farmer, but I think that's right. (laughs) If you plant soybeans, you get soybeans. And how ludicrous would it be for the farmer to sow corn and then pray for soybeans? Oh, please, God, oh, please, God, let this be soybeans. Let this be soybeans. What did you plant? Corn. What do you think you're going to get? Yet how many live this way? They do not see or they are unwilling to accept the consequences of their actions. Doesn't matter how much you pray, you're still going to get corn. This is where we can mock God or think that His design can be foiled. You cannot think that you can live your life however you want to live it, live it apart from Him, and then reap something good and beneficial and eternal in the end. Should we sin that grace may abound? What does Paul say? No, no, a thousand times no. Let's be honest. We can fool ourselves. We can fool other people. But we cannot and will not fool God. And it's not merely a matter of doing good. It's how you do good. You could do good in order for what you get out of it. You could think you are doing good, but you're really sowing to your own flesh. That's emphasized here, I believe, in these verses Verse 8, for the one who sows to what? To his own flesh. It's selfish, it's self-centered, it's for self-glorification and praise. It's not because of love of God, it's because you love and cherish self. When you sow to your own flesh, it is these works of the flesh that ultimately come out. We could make it look good to others. We could even make it look good and convince ourselves that it is good. That's why Paul warns us, don't be deceived. This is a dangerous place to be. 
And here again, there is an important dividing line. The one who sows, sows to his own flesh. You see the motive there. You see the will. You see the desire. You're doing this for yourself. Will from his own flesh, what? Reap corruption. This corruption speaks of a decaying corpse, decaying body. Paul is using it here to speak about final judgment. This dividing line is not between bad Christians and good Christians. It's not the dividing line between average Christians and super spiritual Christians. The dividing line is between non-Christians and Christians. Do not be deceived because final judgment or final glory are at stake. Have you ever heard this? Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Do not mock God by not taking seriously His word and warning about the judgment that is to come. The life that is dominated by sin and the flesh will have their life fall apart. That's what sin does. Sin makes your life fall apart. Doesn't put things together, doesn't help you. Sin actually destroys you. It deconstructs you. It makes you fall apart. If you come to your senses today and you look at your life, maybe you can ask yourself, why is my life falling apart? Why is everything crumbling around me? Have you ever considered what you've sown in your life? Now, that's not everything. People can have things done to them that make their lives miserable. But we also know from God's Word that it could be what you've done. Have you ever considered what you've sown in your life? The reaping doesn't determine the harvest. The sowing determines the harvest. Why are you miserable? This verse is meant to wake you up from your sinful state state under the dominion of sin and say, I don't want to sow to my own flesh. I don't want to reap corruption. I want there to be a different way, another way. I don't want this sin in my life to dominate me and take over and control everything. There has to be a way out. There has to be a way for cleansing. There has to be a way to escape this kind of corruption. And good news, my friend, there is. Because the one who follows Jesus Christ is able to do what. Paul says next, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Christians are those who sow to the Spirit. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is their life. He is their joy. And they could say, now everything that I'm doing is not for me. It's for Him who died for me. I'm living for Jesus Christ who died and rose again from the dead. And so my desire is to sow to the Spirit. My desire is that fruit of the Spirit to come out of my life and be evident in my life. And everything that I do then is done for Him. 
And only those who have the Spirit, only those who are possessed by the Spirit, are indwelt by the Spirit, can sow to the Spirit. This is why, for my children, before they come to know Jesus Christ, I cannot expect them to sow to the Spirit. Why not? Because they don't have the Spirit. They need first a new heart. They need to be regenerated. They need to be made new from the inside out. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. Then what? Then I can encourage them, so to the Spirit. Then I can encourage them to do good. And what is this doing good? It's doing good to others. Motivated by a love of God and a love for others, you look for ways then to express that love spiritually and materially to other people around you. You find a way to do good that will care for other people's souls. Christian, you are responsible to so to the Spirit. Paul isn't just saying here, just sit back and it will happen. He's saying, no, there are steps that you need to take in order to sow to the Spirit. Get up off the couch. You can't coast along and do good. You have to get up and do good and sow to the Spirit. The reaping then that comes from sowing to the Spirit is a completely different destiny, isn't it? The one who sows to the flesh reaps corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. You notice the difference there. The one who sows to the flesh, to his own flesh, will, from his own flesh, reap corruption. What does your flesh have to give you? What good can your flesh do to you? Your flesh can't do anything, can't give you anything. It only brings corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, then what? From the Spirit. What does the Spirit give you? The Spirit is the one who gives you eternal life. The Spirit is the one who gives you the blessing of eternal life. I can't give anything to myself, but the Spirit can give me everything. What a difference then in the harvest. Sowing to the Spirit is the evidence of our faith in Jesus Christ. So don't be deceived. And so to the Spirit. Number three, don't give up doing good. Don't give up doing good. <laughs> Have you ever planted a seed with a little child? One of the hardest things for them to do is wait, isn't it? You plant that seed in the ground. Let's go check it. It's been five minutes, all right? I can tell you what's happened. Nothing. And they want to go back and they want to check and they want to check and they want to check. Has anything happened now? Okay, maybe now. They want to sow and they want to reap the same day. That's not the way that it works. It takes time until the harvest. It takes time until you reap for sowing to the Spirit and doing good. This is why Paul has to give us this encouragement. Don't give up. 
Don't stop doing good in the spirit. Don't stop being generous. You need to persevere in doing good. Do not grow weary of this doing good. And isn't this our tendency? Nothing's happening. When am I going to benefit for all of this good that I am doing? When is the harvest going to come? You labor and you toil and toil and labor and strain and sweat and push and work and you might be tempted and tired and want to give up. Paul says the Thessalonians something similar in 2 Thessalonians 3.13. He says, as for you brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. We can be weak. We can get tired. But Paul says, press on. Don't give up. What is it that's going to help us continue on? A promise, right? That's what Paul gives us, a promise. A promise that's better than what our eyes can see. A promise that's more sure than what we expect to happen. A promise that is more promising than our pessimistic attitudes. A promise, in due season, you will reap. It might not be on your timetable. It might not be when you want. It might take a good dose of patience and long-suffering, but in due season, we will reap. The due season is coming. If we have sown in the Spirit, the reaping will bless beyond our comprehension, but it will be in due season. It will come. But we must not give up. In due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Why on earth we give up? Our faith, our faith can be frail. We begin to question God's economy. Will, he, will we really reap what we've sown? Will that really happen? Is it, worth it? Is it worth doing good? Is it worth all of this energy and effort that I'm putting forth? It is worth it because God's glory is worth it. Don't give up. Keep on doing good to one another because God is glorified in your doing good. Finally, number four. Do good, especially, do good to all, especially to those in the church. Do good to all, especially to those in the church. In the church, we've seen a bunch of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But Paul drives the point home with a do. That's what he says, right? Verse 10. So then, therefore, do good. But he qualifies it with this, doesn't he? He says, as we have opportunity. So then, as you have opportunity. What does Paul mean by that? Are you going to get to the end and someday stand before Jesus and say, well, Jesus, you know, I got really busy and things in life were really crazy and I would have liked to have done some good, but I just didn't have the opportunity to do good. I don't think so. I think what Paul is saying here is he's saying, your opportunity To do good is while life lasts. You have opportunity now. 
Life is short. It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. You have an opportunity while life lasts. Do good now. Look for ways to care for souls spiritually and materially. Do good in the spirit. Even think about what it says in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 3, verse 27 Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to what? Do it. You have good that you can do to someone else? Don't withhold that from them. If you have the power to do good, do it. And then then Paul broadens out this command to say, do good to everyone. Do good to all. Everyone that you have come in contact with, seek to do good unto them. Could Paul really mean do good to everyone, to all? Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Do you hear it there? Expressly said, do good to those who hate you. Can I really do good to all? According to Jesus, you can. According to Jesus, you can even do it to those who hate you and are your enemies and who curse you and who abuse you. But to do good to everyone, you need grace and help. You need God's grace to do that. So yes, we can do good to all. While this is very broad, Paul also makes it very specific, doesn't he? Especially to those of the household of faith. Especially those who are your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Especially to those who are in the church. And so this is the church locally that we are a part of. Care for one another, love one another, do good to one another. Find ways to express that love to each other. Make sure that everyone is cared for spiritually, materially. Care for one another. Give to one another generously. The world will know that we are Christ's disciples because of the love that we will share among ourselves. And that will be evident by how we do good to each other. It can also be to the household of God who are not in our congregation other brothers and sisters who are outside our local body of the church, but they're still in the church of God. They are Christians. They are people of God. If we see them in need and can do good to them, we should bless them and help them as well. And so we're striving to do good. But do you ever struggle with doing good? Why do you struggle with that? Why is it difficult? Why is it hard? Is it ever because we lose sight of Christ? We lose sight of who He is, what He has done for us. Do you want to do good? Start by being captivated by Christ. Meditate and think about all the good that he has done to you. How much good has Jesus Christ done to you? 
I can't quantify it. I can't measure it. I can't tell you how much he's done for me that's good because it's too much. More good than I could ever imagine. More good than you could ever imagine. And definitely more good than you or I ever deserve. And we are called in the grace of Jesus Christ, so let us do good in the same grace into which we were called. Let us think about all the good that Christ has done for us and let that be the motivating factor for why we say, yes, I'm going to take this step. Yes, I'm going to express love. Yes, I'm going to do good. Yes, I'm going to help this person because I know how much Jesus Christ has done for me and I can't forget about it. And I can't let it go. And I won't let it go. And to think that this is not merely us doing good for other people. It's actually God in us and through us who then is doing good to other people by his spirit, caring for souls and lives of those around us. Let's not lose sight of that. This isn't just my work. This is God's work that he's doing in the church and then in the world. We're doing good because we love Jesus, because we know of his great love that he's demonstrated for us on the cross. We're motivated to do good because we've been called into his grace. And since we have been lavished by his grace, with his grace, we want to lavish his love and his grace on other people as well. We can't contain it. Our doing good is the gospel fruit that's flowing out of the root of the gospel that's planted in our hearts so that in everything, in everything, God will receive all of the glory and all of the praise. And so that his glory will be spread over this world. Let's pray. Father, let us remember and not neglect that there is much good that is done through the preaching and proclamation of your gospel. But let us also see people who are in need. People who are in need of the gospel people who are also in need to have your love for them expressed in tangible ways, ways that people can see and know and experience. Father, let us not see this doing good as just an end in of itself for what we get out of it. But let us lift up our eyes and see the work that you are doing in the church and in the world through us. Father, I pray our understanding of who Christ is and what he has done, his death on the cross, would be the motivation, the driving force 
behind why we do good. That we would not lose sight of how much good you have done to us. Father, even to remember the good of forgiveness you've done to us. We were sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. You sent your son to die on the cross to bear our sin upon his body on that tree. To bear the wrath, justice of God but then to be raised on the third day from the dead. That that sacrifice is sufficient to forgive and make atonement for all of our sin and to bring us into fellowship with you. And so may our doing of good Be what you use to bring more people into fellowship with you and to bring people into closer fellowship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.